So we're going to be looking today at God's Word, so please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50, Isaiah chapter 52, we're going to start reading at verse 13 and read through chapter 53, verse 12. Uh, This is a very well-known passage, it's a very heavy, rich passage. Um, I'm going to do my best here. It won't ding, but you'll know I'm at least keeping. Hear God's word. Book of Isaiah, chapter 52. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading. We're going to take a look at this uh, really intense passage. And um, I'm going to take it in a direction that is maybe a little bit unexpected. Hopefully completely orthodox. And if I say anything really zany, you'll know during the talking. But before we can look at this and what it has to do with us and ultimately with Jesus, I just want to summarize what we just read. Because Isaiah 52 and 53 gives us a lot all at once and it jumps around a little bit. So I'm going to give you kind of a punch list, first of all, 
for the ways that the servant, whoever he is, who's spoken of in this passage, is in fact suffering. You ready for this? First of all, he is offensive to look at. He's off-putting. People don't want to look at him. Many were astonished at you, uh, 14. His appearance was marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of mankind. He didn't look like a person anymore. He was humble in origin. He wasn't royal or impressive or noble in appearance. We read that he grew up before God like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This was not somebody that you would expect great things from. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. There's a little link to a passage in Isaiah here, or excuse me, in Haggai, chapter 2, verse 7, which later on will describe the coming Son of Man as the desire of all the nations. But he had no, that, that desire that the nations have for Jesus does not come from anything about him in his appearance. He's outcast of men and apparently outcast of God as well. He's despised and rejected by men. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. It's bad enough to be thrown out by your friends and rejected by the society you're part of. But when you consider that somebody may be on God's bad list, we read that he suffered emotional misery. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It talks about the anguish of his soul. And yet when he was persecuted, he was silent and didn't object or argue back. We read that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And he was silent like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers. He doesn't open his mouth in protest. We read that he was treated with injustice. He was unjustly injured or killed, oppressed. Uh, The word oppression shows up several times. Oppressed by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. The Greek for this is literally, he was cut off from the earth. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, and yet he was crushed. His family line is cut short. As for his generation, who considers considered that he was off from the land of the living? He was treated like a wrongdoer even in his death. We read that they made his grave with the wicked. Most traditional cultures have a burial place for particularly disgraceful people. And he was with a rich man in his death. Now, this is a little bit of a puzzling thing. You think, well, you mean he gets a bad treatment, a bad burial place, or a good burial place? And it's a little bit of a puzzle, but the same word is used in 2 Samuel 12 when Nathan tells his famous parable to David of the rich man who had stole his neighbors, speaks of this wicked rich man. We read that he was numbered with the transgressors. And all of this almost making it all worse, all of this happens by the will of God. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But Isaiah goes a little step further, because he not only describes all of this suffering, which is heavy enough, but he actually goes on and he says that the suffering that took place was not because of anything that he'd done, not for his own wrongdoing, but for the sake of others and because of their wrongdoing. So we read, he was enduring the sorrow of others. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. He was physically punished in the place of others. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's punished in order to bring healing to other people. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and by his wounds, or famously in King James, right, by his stripes we are healed. He was killed, in short, for the sin of other people. Stricken for the transgression of my people, he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Now, Isaiah 52 and 53 is rightly, normally read as a portrait of Jesus, and it is. In fact, this is an incredibly important portrait of Jesus, and I'll just tell you one story that's related to this. When I was growing up, uh, I was in a Reformed Presbyterian church in upstate New York, and one of the most uh, charismatic, powerful, uh, in personality at least, men that I ever met was a pastor in Canada named Rich Gantz. One or two people are chuckling because he's in rough shape now. He's near the end of his life. But he was a, he had grown up as a, uh, I believe an Orthodox Jew in the Bronx in New York. And as he got older, he saw some suffering that had taken place in his family. I think his father had died uh, an early death, and it had embittered him against God. And as a young man, probably in his teens or uh, early 20s, he had decided to reject the Jewish faith of his youth and become a hardened atheist. Along the way somewhere, he also decided to become a uh, clinical psychologist. And he'd gotten a Ph.D. in that. And shortly after he had finished his doctoral work at, um, I think it was Upstate Medical Center in, in Syracuse, uh, he and his uh, young wife, who was Canadian, uh, decided they were going to go on a trip. And they had some destination, I can't remember where it was, some place in Europe they were planning to go, and then everything went wrong with their trip plans. And as used to happen a long time ago, a lot more than it does now with computers, uh, they wound up some, someplace completely different. They wound up unexpectedly in Amsterdam. And when they were in Amsterdam, they were looking for a place to stay. And there was some kind of huge conference or sporting event going on, and Rich and Nancy couldn't even find a place to stay until at one point, he, as the way he told the story, he believes literally it was an angel who did that. This strange man that they'd never met steps out of a dark alley and says, you need to go here and gave them directions to a place some of you may have heard of called Labrie. Labrie is a Christian world, including in the U.S., and this one was outside of Amsterdam. And so they wind up going, because they know they can stay at this place, to Labrie, this Christian study center. And they wind up staying there for several weeks and just having, if I know rich at all, endless arguments with the people. And at one point, they're in a discussion of some kind, and one of the people present teaches him a passage from Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And with anger in his voice, Rich looks at him and says, How dare you read to me a portion of your New Testament? And it was then that the man turned, and that was the beginning of the unraveling of rich fancies. The Lord Jesus is shouted loud and clear in this passage. But this isn't the only thing that we should read when we read this passage. We have to read it, first of all, as we do all Old Testament uh, passages in Old Testament context. 
in part as a portrait of Israelism, that the prophet is actually in some ways painting a portrait of righteous Israel suffering sometimes for things that they didn't do. But before even that, it's a portrait of the prophet in his role as a leader in Israel. And in part, we are called to read it, I think, as a pattern for our own lives and leadership. I think very often we make the mistake uh, when we read uh, the, the Bible in sort of a self-centered way of uh, reading ourselves into every story when we should be reading Jesus' story. Every once in a while, and I think this is an example, we rush to read Jesus when we also need to read and see ourselves. And here's what I'm talking about. If you set out to serve the Lord and other people in any kind of leadership or authority or care, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt. And I hope you'll look at your own life and your labors through this passage for a couple minutes. If you want to do anything beautiful in the eyes of God and of mankind, if you want to do something with your life or with your time or with whatever time is left, that's lasting and good, something that makes an impact for generations and maybe even for eternity, you will have to suffer. If you want to be a great business person, coach, teacher, mother, father, husband, I've got a whole list, hold on, group leader, supervisor, director, president, dean, doctor, head of school, senator, chief scientist, mentor, captain, board member, mayor, Lieutenant, Master Sergeant, Professor, Secretary General, Pastor, Deacon, Elder, Friend, anything, you will have to suffer for the sake of others. How? We'll look again at what the servant endures. You'll have to go it alone sometimes. People you loved and poured yourself into will leave, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not for such good reasons. People will not understand the decisions that you're making, even though you've done your best to explain it. Those you once thought of as peers will quit, burn out, even become your enemies. And sharing your heart and your mind with others will become a struggle. You will not be one of the cool kids, because the stakes are too high as Christians to be cool. Some people will think that God is angry with you when they see the things that you go through, because some of the things that you suffer as you seek to serve and lead others, are things that God brings on people he is angry with. You'll be accused of wrongdoing unjustly, so much so that self-examination will be a constant task for you, something you're always stopping to look into your own soul and see if you're doing right in the eyes of God. You will be stopped from defending yourself when you need to. You will have to hold your tongue instead of letting your critics have it right between the eyes. You will suffer physically, and nothing will kill you like stress, whether directly or indirectly. You won't be one of the beautiful people who seem to never change. You may have to give up a family. It may be that you will never marry or never have children. It may be that your parents or your spouse or your children or others will betray you. You will almost certainly struggle with what people call work-life balance. You will not be able to give your family all the things that you would like to. You may lose your very life, either the swift sacrifice of a violent or a tragic death, or the slow sacrifice of spending and being spent 
for the sake of others, as Paul put it. Now, this suffering that we're reading about is not pointless because the servant's suffering isn't just because of the sins and transgressions of other people. It actually helps and saves others. Is it too much to say that our ministry, with the blessing of God, can save others? I don't think so, because that's exactly what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The servant, then, in his suffering, is cleansing others from sin through his prayer and his patient discipleship. We read that he will sprinkle many nations. That's the sprinkling of cleansing, either with water in one of the ceremonial cleanses or cleansings of the Old Testament, or on the Day of Atonement when the high priest dips the hyssop plant in the blood of the lamb and the bulls and the goats and sprinkles the people with it, washing them from their sin. His soul makes an offering for guilt. We get the, uh, the picture of somebody who is pleading and praying for those he loves, who are under his authority, who are under his care, that God will be merciful to them, and God hearing those prayers. The servant helps and saves not a few, but many. He shall sprinkle nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The servant has an ongoing ministry of prayer for those that he or she is. He makes an intercession for the transgressors. The servant's righteousness and knowledge will save many. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's justification language. That is, he'll successfully teach ignorant people how to be closer. And parents and teachers, that starts with and focuses often on little people. I know there's no little ignorant people in this conscience but we have a few in my family. And, and although no one believes it can happen, God does a great work through the servants. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The sense here is God is going to do something astonishing, and unexpected through the sacrifice of this service. So in sum, the suffering of the servant will not be for nothing. Will not be for nothing. The labor will not be in vain. If you pour yourself out for the good of others, the Lord will use it for good, mostly in ways that you cannot see, at least in this life. Some that you're struggling for and working with and praying for and trying to reach may be converted. Your prayers for some will be answered. Their sins will be forgiven, and their hearts will be changed. Many will be guided into a life of goodness and righteousness that they would not have lived were it not for you. Strayed sheep return, and not just those you're in contact with. The effects of your leadership, your discipling, your prayers, your friendship, your teaching will multiply through those to others that you will never meet. This, by the way, if I can just go off my little script here, this is some of the beauty of the body of Christ. You understand that the language that Paul uses when he talks about the church being the body of Christ means 
that through the work of the Holy Spirit, it is like we are physically connected to him and our hands and feet, and that the work of Christ is extended through the world and through history. Who is it that uh, Jesus' disciples reached? They reached us. They reached us through the things which they said and did, through the testimony which they gave. And probably your work will last for generations to come. See, as Christians, we are playing a really long game. We are not focused on the next election cycle. We are not even focused on this lifetime. We're playing a game that outlasts our lives and continues into eternity. And in time, whether you know what it looks like or not, whether you see it or not, you will silence your enemies. You will silence the enemies of God. And in time, your seemingly strange priorities will be vindicated. People may ask you, why do you stay in that marriage? Why do you give away so much of your money? Why did you have kids so young? Why did you stay in that contract instead of just breaking it? Why did you choose that career when you could have made so much more? Why did you stay in that place? Why did you stay in that church? Why did you put your life on the line for the sake of your subordinates? Why did you not just quit? Even the great will shut their mouths before what God has done through your work. See, the effects of an obedient life, a life of sacrifice for what's right, can almost never be seen right away. You know, you have kids, and you, when you're, especially when you're a young parent, you're watching them like a hawk, and you're wondering, am I doing a good job? Are they turning out okay? It takes several decades to start to see whether your kids are turning out okay. And when you grow up, I mean, as you're growing up, you think, well, my parents seem to be okay. They, seem, they raised me to be a Christian. They seem to know what they're doing. Sometimes we grow up only to see our parents make big, huge mistakes in middle age or old age. The compound interest of a righteous life pays off in decades and centuries and millennia. And it pays off in churches and nations and societies as well as families. And this is true even of people who are dishonored after their death. Our society owes much to the people whose monuments, some of the people at least, whose monuments are now torn down, but much, much more to people we have never heard of and never will hear of who lie, as George Eliot put it. So my question is, how about you? What do you want more? To feel appreciated or change the world. So what about the servant himself? Doesn't he die in this picture? This is not a very uplifting movie we're watching here, is it? Doesn't he die in this picture? How does this do the servant himself any good? What's the result for someone who, like Paul says, is gladly uh, spends and is spent for the sake of others in obedience to God? Is the message of the Bible simply do the right thing, even if it destroys you. In the justice and the grace of God, that is not, and we actually get a hint of that right in this passage. Because the servant who suffers is also satisfied. The one who gave, gives up a family for the sake of the kingdom of God, we read in chapter 53, verse 10, shall see his offspring. We read already 
He, as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, now we read, he shall see his offspring. The one who gives up wealth for the sake of the kingdom shall divide the spoil with the strong. The one who gives up a long life for the sake of the kingdom shall prolong his days. The one who does what is right, even in the darkness of uncertainty, will see that it was worth it. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be saved. Now, we may be asking for ourselves as we sort of think about this, how? Where will I get the strength that God is, or to do what God is calling me to do? And maybe some of us, especially those of us who are in early decades of life, are just wondering, how is God calling me to serve? Well, I can't help you with that stuff. Talk to your elders. <laughs> but we actually need to be asking a more fundamental question, which is why? Why does it work this way? Why would it work this way? Why would it be that our service and sacrifice will lead to salvation for others and satisfaction for ourselves? Because there's no reason why God owes us such a result, right? We can sweat and work and bleed for bad things, and sometimes people do. Or we can sweat and work and bleed even for good things, but we don't put God in our debt. As Jesus said, does a master thank his servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. So I like the King James on this. I'm not a King James guy, but sometimes we just get the... We are unprofitable servants. We have done only what was our duty. Now last month, many churches celebrated Easter, known outside of the English-speaking world, by a better and more accurate name, which is Passover. And every week we remember the resurrection of Jesus, but it's helpful to remember the connection between the death and resurrection of Jesus and Passover. Because the day of Jesus' resurrection was built on top of the ancient celebration of escape from Israel. When the people of Israel were told by God to prepare for the end of slavery and the beginning of freedom, the only way that could happen was for God to bring death on their enemies, which meant death for all the firstborn of Egypt. And this is a story I, I hope most of the youngsters at least know. Uh, every family was to take a lamb, and they were to cover the blood of their, their cover their families with the blood of the lamb. But the way they did that was very particular, and it's spelled out in great detail in the book of Exodus. Every family was to take a lamb from their flock, an unblemished lamb. The lamb was to live with them in their house for four days. You understand what that means? It means by the end of that four days, it's a pet. It means it's their wool baby. And then finally, on the 14th day of the month, they were to slaughter it. And the blood of the lamb must be painted on the doorposts of the house, and the flesh of the lamb, every bit of it, must be roasted and eaten. The message of Passover is clear. Life does not come through death just because. That's not the circle of life. It's not because it's spring or whatever. Life comes through death. Salvation comes to dying people. Sacrificial service is worthwhile because of the death of another. It comes through the death of the Lamb. When Jesus came, he was called the Lamb of God. And this is the true servant, of whom we are all disciples and imitators 
a little bit on our best days. This is the one whose life was cut off from the earth. This is the one who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, silent before those who condemned him, who put himself in the hands of a just God, crying out, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is the one who takes away the sins of the world. The Ethiopian court official, the famous Ethiopian eunuch from Acts chapter 8, somebody whose generation had been cut off, by the way, uh, whose life had been removed from the earth, is rolling along in his chariot, reading aloud from the scroll of Isaiah, and he's in this passage, and he meets with Philip. And he asks such a perfect question for somebody in his life situation. He says, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Because he's got to be thinking, this sounds weirdly like me. And Philip, we read, beginning with this scripture, told the message of the resurrection is manifold, and I'm just going to name three things briefly in closing. First, salvation is not within us. It's not there just waiting for you to discover it if you reach down deep enough, if you dig hard enough, if you get enough affirmation and love. Salvation is not within us. It's outside of us. It must come. The good news that the servant's suffering is not in vain is only true for us through Jesus. It's only true for us because it was first true as the Lamb of God. Second, God has given his son and servant, Jesus, glory, kingdom, power, and satisfaction. He looks at the anguish of his soul, everything he endured on that cross, all the misunderstanding, all the betrayal, all the confusion and opacity of his disciples in the years before that. And he's, all that he went through was worth it, for through it, he won dominion and power, and a bride. And that's you and me. Third, because Jesus is in you, because the risen Christ is within you and you are in him, your service and sacrifice are not for nothing. God will use them for the good of others, soon or not soon, and nobody can tell. God will bring such joy and fulfillment to you that you will look back and say, it was all, every bit of it, it was all worth it. I want to close with a verse, a long passage, just one verse, from the end of 1 Corinthians um, 15. And I'll say that um, this verse that I'm about to read jumped out at me like it never had before a number of years ago at the funeral of a godly old saint uh, who arranged that at his funeral, the entirety of 1 Corinthians 15 would be read aloud. 1 Corinthians 15 is long. I don't know if you are familiar with it. It's 58 verses long. It's not a short, nice reading. And it's all about the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection, not just of Jesus, although it starts with that, but it's the re about the resurrection of the saint. It's about the resurrection of and it's hit me between the eyes like it never had before because I realized that both for the saint who has passed, who has passed away and for Paul as he wrote these words, 
This was meant as the greatest encouragement possible. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not. Heavenly Father, we praise you that in the Lord our labor is not in vain. And I pray that for myself and for each one of us here as we get up in the morning and consider what we could do with our hands, that we would seek first your kingdom, that we would do that which brings you the greatest pleasure, that which brings you the greatest glory, that which brings blessing to others. And I pray that you who require that we often bury our service like a seed in the ground, in faith that it will one day grow into something. I pray that you would fill us with faith and that you would fill us with patience, that we would be ready to lay down everything in the confidence that one day we ask these things in the name of our risen 